Well, today we're going to continue on with our final events series that we're doing, where we've been looking at the Bible and the spirit of prophecy to see what we can better understand about the times in which we're living or that I feel are right upon us to just get a better understanding there. And so we've been tracking through that and we've talked about various things. We've talked about this National Sunday Law and we started with some dominoes and how there's so many things happening that I think are pushing the need a little bit closer to that being passed and how those final few dominoes there will go down quickly. We spent some time talking about the abomination of desolation and its triple-fold fulfillment, the one that pertains to us being, again, this National Sunday Law. We looked at the four stages of the Sunday Law a few weeks ago, and we see those outlined there, and we'll come back to that a little bit. We'll touch on that a little bit today, but if not, you can go back and get that presentation. And then just last week, we were talking about the New World Order and how we found that the true New World Order that we're looking for is when Protestantism, or the United States, Catholicism, or the papacy, and spiritualism unite, goes to all kings of the earth, and we have this universal Sunday law. And so that is truly the New World Order that we're looking for. And so we talked about that last time. And so this time, we're talking about the little time of trouble. And then, of course, we're going to delve into a little more fully the latter rain and loud cry, which is also part of the little time of trouble, but that's going to be its own presentation, the death decree. We're going to talk about some more. And then Jacob's time of trouble, which is a different block. It's after the little time of trouble. And then God's people delivered in the second coming. And so we're making our way through that. So for this one, the little time of trouble, not so little. That's a little daunting of a title, isn't it? You know, for our pathfinders, there's probably nothing more fun than to go out into nature on a backpacking expedition. And I know many of you, that is the sole purpose of joining a pathfinder club so we can go backpacking, so we can get out in nature, right? And much of what you do here is to practice how to make a fire, how to, you know, lash two sticks together or, or, or long not sticks, but I'm talking like small trees, to get across rivers or challenges or whatever it might be. So when you get into the field, you can have fun. I remember lots of different backpacking adventures that I've been on. I remember a time when my whole stove caught on fire about this high. That was a little time of trouble for me. I remember a time in the summer where we went over and over and over and we kept bringing this same tent and it was the heaviest thing in our pack and we thought, we're through with bringing this tent. It never rains. We're leaving it at home. Guess what? That's the weekend we had the hardest thunderstorm and I remember in the middle of the night, the trees start blowing and the rain starts pelting and we thought, "Uh uh-oh, that was our little time of trouble. I remember another time that we went camping and we brought the tent and when I say tent I mean the canvas part of the tent but no one asked if I had brought the poles yeah little time of trouble I remember going with my dad on an expedition just the two of us and he mapped out must have been an old map because when we showed up sure enough this is the place we had it right there on the road we pinned it down but there was virtually no trail it kind of started off and then it just kind of dissipated into thin air And so we're studying our map, and we're looking, and it's getting dark, and we need to hurry up and camp. And so let's go where this creek is, and when we go to this little valley, guess what? The creek isn't there either. 
And so we have, finally we find a puddle. It's a mud hole, really, and we depress it down just enough, let the silt settle so we can filter off the top our little time of trouble. I remember camping in Mexico one time in tents. My wife was with me, Elizabeth. And all around the campsite, people kept seeing tarantulas crawling around. Little time of trouble. Have you ever been camping next to a whippoorwill? That can be a little time of trouble. Maybe you forgot a food bag. Equal time of trouble. Maybe a bear has gotten into your food bag in the middle of the night. Now this has never happened to me yet. But if you talk to Mr. Bryce, he can tell you all about it. <laughs> so that's maybe a casual introduction to this idea of little time of trouble. But you are in fact preparing in some part of going without certain things or making do without certain things and fleeing to the mountains, which is where we'll circle back around where we end. But the reality is this little time of trouble is not so little. It's truly a misnomer. It's what we call it. It's before the great time of trouble, but the little time of trouble is still very great. It's a big ordeal. And so we're going to look at that a little more closely this morning. Now this term, little time of trouble, we don't find that in Scripture. We don't really find it in the writings of Ellen White. We believe that she alludes to this time. And so as Adventists, we've kind of given it this term. So you can call it something different, and that's fine. But that's what we'll be calling it for today. But it's that time before the seven last plagues fall. It's before the close of probation. And so we've looked at this chart a little bit. Some of you have asked, and I've emailed you this chart. I don't know if it's a perfect chart, but I think it's a pretty good one. So we've been talking about this Sunday law here somewhat in the middle. And here they name it the short time of trouble. Same idea as little time of trouble. And then here on the graph we have this great time of trouble. And that's the seven last plagues. And at the end of that, Jesus comes. Now again, recognize that the distances across do not relate to time. Okay, That's just trying to fit everything in. If we were to draw it a different way, we could put up on the, the board here, phases of the National Sunday Law begin, and we could draw our line, and that kind of begins this domino effect, if you will, and let's draw another line here, the close of probation, and then we could draw a third line, which is the second coming of Jesus, and we'll put that line up there, and there's several things that I believe take place in this period between the National Sunday Law and the close of probation, and we call that the little time of trouble. Then the, the following time is Jacob's time of trouble, or the great time of trouble. Does that make sense so far? And so we have these two separate times, different things happening at both times. There's some debate on which happens on which side of the line of the close of probation. And to be perfectly honest, we don't fully know when the close of probation takes place. We can see the, the plagues unfolding and start to ask the questions. You know, I think probation has closed, but there's no trumpet blast or anything that lets us know when that is. And so while there may be some difference back and forth even on this, I don't claim infallibility, but I'm going to put up here what I believe makes the most sense. All right, so we have forced Sunday worship. We already talked about that some. We have the call to leave the cities. We're going to talk about that more today. We have the mark of the beast received during this time period. Cannot buy or sell. 
that eventually leads to a death decree. Then we have Satan counterfeits second advent. Some people put that on the other side of the line, and we'll talk more about that. Then we have this latter rain or loud cry. We've touched on that a little bit, but we're going to have another presentation just on that. And it's also the sealing of 144,000, the blotting out of sin, and lastly, the judgment of the living. So we're again just trying to get a big picture here. If we go to the other side, on Jacob's time of trouble, that's when we have the seven last plagues. We have the saints suffer, but they do not uh, perish during the plagues, which is good news. Just like in the, the plagues, the seven last plagues, if you will, in Egypt, God protected his people. We see that Jacob's time of trouble is a worldwide devastation by Satan. And then lastly, we have this battle of Armageddon. So that, maybe that helps a little bit, in part, to clarify these terms that we're talking about as we try to unfold these. But many of these things happen very, very quickly. And going back to this little time of trouble, you have things happening at the same time. It's not that they all go in that specific order, because you have the latter rain and the loud cry going on throughout the whole period, just as you have phases of the Sunday law working their way down. And so to begin our study, I hope you brought your Bibles this morning. We're going to spend some time looking at various things. But this is the one verse that I'm going to have you look at in your Bibles. We looked briefly at Daniel chapter 11 a time before. And we're going to go back now in Daniel chapter 11, verse 31. Daniel chapter 11 and verse 31. I'm going to hope you remember a little bit of what we talked about here in Daniel 11. But we read there, And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress, and they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. And maybe you remember that presentation. And so the king of the north is the papacy, and this power will defile the sanctuary, which has always been the object lesson for the plan of salvation. And so this sanctuary is polluted by putting any system of human works in place of the genuine or the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And so the abomination of desolation, the abomination being the papacy, taking the place and prerogatives of God, led to the desolation of 1,260 years that followed. And so this is the union of church and state. The papal supremacy for 1,260 years, from 538 to 1798, which is the persecution of the saints that don't go along with the abomination. And we're just going to jump down here to verse 36 to try to make sure we're identifying this king of the north correctly. And so just let your eye drop down to verse 36. It says, Then the king... That's the papacy, the king of the north, shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god and shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished for what has been determined shall be done. And we have talked before how a nation speaks is with its laws, but here it's speaking blasphemy. And so how does a nation speak blasphemy, but laws that are blasphemous? They're against God's laws. They're stepping on top of, they're trampling God's law. And so that, again, further clarifies, if you will. So now let's go back to verse 32 and continue. We just finished verse 31. And in verse 32, it says, Those who do wickedly against the covenant, that's God's covenant, 
he, the papacy, shall corrupt with flattery, given all kinds of nice things and benefits and so on. And then it continues, but the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Great exploits. This is giving, I believe, the three angels' message. Under the power of the latter rain. This is the loud cry or the midnight cry. And then verse 33, And those of the people who understand shall instruct many. Praise the Lord. Yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. Have mercy. So sword would be murder, flame would be burning at the stake, captivity would be imprisonment, plundering is where people would often give property to the heretics that were killed. And so this idea that people are proclaiming the three angels' message during this little time of trouble, during the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the latter rain, but there is this element of sword and flame and captivity and plundering. And that's where people say, have mercy, pastor. That's the part I don't want to hear. La, 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 la. Manuscripts released, volume 13, page 394. And you'll notice a lot of obscure and challenging places that we're going to be quoting from, but they're right there in last day events, most of them. And so I would direct your attention there. But it says, we have no time to lose. Troublous times are before us. Some might make the case, this is talking about the little time of trouble. The world is stirred with the spirit of war. Soon the scenes of trouble spoken of in the prophecies will take place. And in that quotation, she's referring specifically to these verses. Daniel chapter 11, verses 31 to 36. It goes on, the prophecy in the 11th of Daniel... Verses 31 to 36, it has a bracket there in the quotation that notifies you that's the context, has nearly reached its complete fulfillment. Much of the history that has taken place in fulfillment of this prophecy will be repeated. Meaning all of the 1,260 years, the dark ages, all of that is going to be repeated again. And we're getting awfully close to its fulfillment. Then in verse 33, And those of the people who understand shall instruct many, yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. This parallels the loud cry message of Revelation 18. Yet they will fall. Some will fall by sword and by flame and by captivity. And spoil for many days. Many will instruct during the loud cry message and many will respond to the message. But this will, in fact, lead to martyrdom. You know, it's interesting, the word martyr in the Greek, from the word martos, is the same word that we get witness in the New Testament over and over and over. The word witnessed comes also from the word martos, which means to witness literally unto death. So the question that we're asking this morning is, what do we do to prepare for all of this? Revelation 12, verse 11, it says, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Friends, if we love Jesus, we will be willing to die for him. 
And really, which is harder? Steps to Christ tell us that the hardest battle ever fought is the, the battle with self. Have you read that before? Is it harder to crucify self on the altar, or is it harder to allow your body physically to die? They're both challenging. But if we love Jesus, we'll be willing to die daily, right? Early writings, page 85. I saw that the Holy Sabbath is and will be the separating wall between the true Israel of God and unbelievers. What's the issue going to be? Sabbath. And that the Sabbath is the great question, we could say the great test question, to unite the hearts of God's dear waiting saints. I saw that God had children who do not see and keep the Sabbath. So we've just switched now. God has his kids in other denominations, we could say, that do not see and keep the Bible Sabbath. But there's kids. Going on, it says, they have not rejected the light upon it. And at the commencement of the time of trouble, I would submit this is the little time of trouble, we are filled with the Holy Ghost as we went forth and proclaimed the Sabbath more fully. So they're open. They're God's kids, but they haven't heard about the Sabbath. And at this time, we're proclaiming the Sabbath. I mean, this fits right in with Revelation 18, verse 4, doesn't it? That says, come out of her who? My kids, my people. Come out of her lest you share her sins, lest you receive of her plagues. That's before the close of probation, before the seven last plagues. Come out of her, my people. And we continue in this quote in early writings, page 85. The commencement of that time of trouble here mentioned does not refer to the time when the plagues shall begin to be poured out. This is not Jacob's time of trouble. But to a short period, maybe that's why they call it short time of trouble, short period just before they are poured out while Christ is in the sanctuary. Again, alluding to the fact that he's still ministering for his people and therefore probation has not yet closed. So during this short time, Sabbath is the key issue. But he has his kids in other denominations. They haven't heard of the Sabbath. Tell me more about the Sabbath. They respond to the Sabbath. And this is all taking place during that little, not so little, time of trouble. And Jesus is seen interceding through his church to his kids all over the world. Continuing, it says, At that time, while the work of salvation is closing, trouble will be coming on the earth and the nations will be angry, yet held in check. Why? So as not to prevent the work of the third angel. So in the time of trouble, I know what I'm going to do. I have a secret hatch right here. And I open it up, and, do, 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 click, and I just hide, and I wait. Is that what it says? No. The forces of evil are held in check so that we, you and I, can proclaim our three angels' message to all of God's kids out there who haven't heard it before. And so again, Ellen White does not specifically use the word little time of trouble, but we can see, clearly see here in this quotation that we just read that there is a short time of trouble that precedes the great time of trouble. And we see that in the little time of trouble that the Sabbath is proclaimed more fully as part of this loud cry message that is given under the outpoint of the latter reign of the Holy Spirit. And this is all while Christ is still in his sanctuary before probation has closed. You still with me so far? 
Okay, I'm just catching my breath. This is from Last Day Events, page 145. Those religious bodies who refuse to hear God's message of warning will be under strong deception and will unite with the civil power to persecute the saints. The Protestant churches will unite with the papal power in persecuting, again, the commandment-keeping people of God. So notice that persecution takes place when Protestant churches unite with the papal power. This doesn't necessarily mean death. You can be persecuted at work even now. You can be persecuted by family members now. You can be persecuted in all kinds of ways now. And continuing on, this lamb-like beast unites with the dragon. Remember, this lamb-like power is the United States or Protestant America. And the dragon is Satan who gives his power, seat, and authority to the first beast of Revelation 13, which is the papacy. And so this lamb-like beast unites with the dragon in making war upon those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's the Seventh-day Adventist Church, is it not? So again, there is clearly persecution that is being described here. And so when the Sunday law starts, it starts small, but it's like a crescendo for those of you that are musical. I used to play the timpani, and oftentimes you start very low and slow. But as the song gets louder, you crescendo. You know what I'm talking about? It starts with, that's a crescendo, sort of. So it starts in this crescendo, and when you cannot eventually buy or sell, and when people are in prison, that finally culminates with a death decree. And so, friends, if you expect at that moment that you're going to be treated fairly because you live here in America and you have certain unalienable religious rights, think again. Signs of the Times, May 26, 1898. She writes this, Those who live during the last days of this earth's history will know what it means to be persecuted for the truth's sake. In the courts, injustice will prevail. Have mercy. The judges will refuse to listen to the reasons of those who are loyal to the commandments of God because they know the arguments in favor of the fourth commandment are unanswerable. So we just don't want to hear it. They will say, we have a law, and by our law, you ought to die. God's law is nothing to them. Signs of the times. In Evangelism 2.36, it says, The law of God, through the agency of Satan, is being made void. We see that today, don't we? In our land of boasted freedom, religious liberty will come to an end. You don't have to take my word for it. Look it up. Religious liberty. We're going to fight for it tooth and nail as long as we can. But there comes a point in the little time of trouble when religious liberty becomes laughable. It's going to be done away with. And the contest will be decided to continue the quote over the Sabbath question, which will agitate the whole world. You thought your persecution at work was bad. This is the whole world against you now. Volume 6 of the Testimonies, page 394. There will come a time when because of our advocacy of Bible truth, we shall be treated as traitors. I mean, there's some Bible truth now 
that this country does not want to accept anymore. Isn't it true? There's Bible truth now that's considered hate speech. There's Bible truth that at some point they're going to get bold enough that they will say those Bible believers are extremists. But Jesus told us we could expect all this, didn't he? Luke 21, verse 12 and following, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. Another way of saying because of me. What's the reason? Jesus. What's the reason? Bible truth. What's the reason? Religious convictions. Therefore, settle it in your hearts. Not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives, and friends. That hurts, doesn't it? And they will put some of you to death, Jesus said. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. There it is again. And so this idea of persecuting rulers... Or let me just back up, five testimonies, volume five of the testimonies, page 450 says this, persecuting rulers, we would expect, ministers, maybe not as much, doesn't say of which denomination, and church members, certainly would not expect that. We like to think that this morning we're all on the same team, we're all saying amen together, but there are people here perhaps, have mercy, who are saying, I'm not sure I'm buying this. But I've been indoctrinated. I know what they believe. CNN, ABC, NBC, Fox, whoever will listen. I got something to share about them. Even church members will conspire against them. With voice and pen, by boasts, threats, and ridicule, they will seek to overthrow their faith. Friends, this almost sounds like it's talking about today. Because it doesn't really matter anymore what the facts are. Have you noticed? It's only about the narrative that they want to spin. And so if we can just by our own voice, by a few tweets, by a few text messages about a few things that go viral, a few videos, by some threats, by some ridicule, <laughs> thumbs up, thumbs down, <laughs> they will seek to overthrow their faith and will be treated like traitors. Here are some headlines I pulled all kind of in relationship to January 6th. Have you heard about that? Okay. This was from the New York Times. And please don't misunderstand. I'm not trying to be political or take a political side. You'll see where I'm going with this in a minute. It says, Capital Riot puts spotlight on apocalyptically minded global far right. And then it talks about their racist ideology. Hold your opinion. Here's another article. Oh, it also calls them extremists. I had to underline one more. Next article. New York Times. Police forces have long tried to weed out extremists in the ranks. Then came the Capitol riot. So again, you have this idea of extremists. Who is defining, by the way, who are extremists, 
what are extremists, what makes a person an extremist. Capital attack reflects U.S. extremist evolution over decades. Here's another one from ABC News that is using, again, extremist, right-wing extremism, and so on. Here's another one. Root out extremists within the military and law enforcement. Look at their social media before giving them power and trust. So again, this idea of rooting out extremists. Here's a local news broadcast, 25 Investigates. That's the name of their news in Massachusetts. Tracking rising extremism in Massachusetts. Now, we said in previous sermons, in fact, I I named the sermon Critical Phase 2 of the National Sunday Law. Because worship and honor of Sunday, when it is forced... And you go along worshiping the beast when it is forced. You are receiving the mark of the beast. But imagine for just a moment, and maybe I'm wrong and I hope that I am, but imagine for just a moment, there's another Adventist church out there somewhere, anywhere, that says, come on guys, this is ridiculous. Maybe their pastor says, this is ridiculous. They haven't taken away our Sabbath, and so we'll just have two worship services every week on Saturday and on Sunday. No big deal. We can bow down to the beast as long as we can have our cake and eat it too on Sabbath. It's vegan, I'm sure. And if so, if that is the case, is it possible that members from that church might point to members of another church and say, that's not Adventism. We're Adventists. We're law-abiding. We're going to church on Sunday. It's not a big deal. Those are the ones that are the extremists. So again, I'm not trying to make political comments on January 6th, okay? But I am saying there is an undercurrent already developing to where Society can just start calling people extremists based on I don't even know what. And it doesn't even really matter what the facts are as long as we label them that way enough times and we start to say they're the problems in society. They're the reason that this is happening or that is happening. They're the extremists and we need to root them out. So again, I just asked the question, could it be possible? We are told in Volume 1, Selected Messages 122, we have far more to fear from within than from without. Can you see how that might be the case? Have mercy. Great Controversy 592 says, Those who honor the Bible Sabbath will be denounced as enemies of law and order. You're honoring the Bible Sabbath. You are an enemy of law and order as breaking down the moral restraints of society, causing anarchy and corruption and calling down the judgments of God upon the earth. Could she may as well have said or used the word extremist? Doesn't seem that far apart to me. 2 Timothy 3.12 gives us this warning, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But if we love Jesus, we're willing to die, no matter what. 
Great Controversy 608, as the defenders of truth refuse to honor the Sunday Sabbath, some of them will be thrust into prison, some will be exiled, some will be treated as slaves. Great Controversy 608. Continuing, to human wisdom, all this now seems impossible. Or is it seeming more possible? But as the restraining Spirit of God shall be withdrawn from men, and they shall be under the control of Satan, who hates the divine precepts, there will be strange developments. The heart can be very cruel when God's fear and love are removed. So those who refuse to honor the Bible Sabbath, some will be thrown into prison, some will be exiled, some will be treated like slaves. And these are all forms of persecution. But I would, I would submit to you, not death just yet. Because that's getting a little bit extreme too, isn't it? But we need to ask the question, will there be martyrs for the faith prior to the close of probation? And secondly, how will I be able to stand at that time? If you're taking a test, I'm kind of giving you a hint to the first question and the second question. But anyway, volume three of Selected Messages 387 says, The persecutions of Protestants by Romanism, by which the religion of Jesus Christ was almost annihilated, the persecutions that almost annihilated Jesus, will be more than rivaled. Don't miss that part. Meaning it will be bigger, greater, it will be more than rivaled when Protestantism and popery are combined. And so you remember, you already know that it was Rome that killed Jesus, and they sought to wipe out the religion of Jesus Christ. And we can also talk about how bad it was in the Dark Ages when they set to eradicate Protestant ideas entirely. But this union between Protestantism and popery will be more than rivaled, this quote tells us. So we can expect that it will be of greater magnitude, of greater intensity. And they estimate some 50 million during the Dark Ages. And we very well may be the recipients of that persecution that leads to death and martyrdom. So we need to be building our faith in preparation for the crisis that is to come. But friends, it's by grace that God allows you, I believe, to go through trials now so that you start building that spiritual muscle, building your faith for those trying, overwhelming times later. Could it be that in those moments, during the little time of trouble, you are thanking God for the trials you had leading up to because that is what put you on your knees. That's what got you in the Word. That's what grounded you in faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what brought you through then. And so that same thing is going to bring me through now. Lord, thank you by your grace that you gave me trials. Selected Messages 397. Many will be in prison. Many will flee for their lives from cities and towns, and many will be martyrs for Christ's sake in standing in defense of the truth. Same idea. But just want to interject this little thought. If you can't stand in defense of truth now, perhaps that means you're the only one at your place of work or in your school, maybe in your church, that is standing for what is true now. If you're not winning in those little battles by God's grace to stand for defense of truth, what are you going to do later in the final crisis? 
And again, I'm not asking anybody to be militant about standing for truth. Jesus stood for truth. But he did it in a way that was kind, that was thoughtful, that was gracious. Here's another quote, volume 5, the testimony, 712. There is a prospect before us of a continued struggle at the risk of imprisonment, loss of property, and even life itself to defend the law of God. And so the question becomes then, very quickly, probably in most of our minds, how are we going to do it? How are we going to stand? How are we going to make it? I mean, my knees are knocking right here, right now, and there's nobody at the door. I like this quote. Write this one down. Volume 3, Selected Messages 420. It says, the best thing for us. Good is good. Better is better. But best is best. The best thing for us is to come into close connection with God. And if he would have us be martyrs for the truth's sake, it may be the means of bringing many more into the truth, end quote. What's the point of martyrdom? Are we just playthings of the devil? I would submit to you, no, we are not. And if you die in that time, you are a martyr because your blood will be seed for somebody else as they see the peace on your face, as they see how you're able to go through these trying times and you're not stressed out about it. You're just faithfully trusting in the Lord. And they say, what do they have? They have something I need, I long for, I've been looking for. He died with a book in his hand. Let me see what that book is. I'm reading that book. And so somebody else, and somebody else, and somebody else. And the message spreads like wildfire. And again, though the devil wants to put it out, he can't put it out. Best thing you can do is a close connection with God. We have to keep rolling. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Circle it. Yes, I will help you. Circle it. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Take it to the bank. Stand on the promises of God. 1 Peter 5, 6-7. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Lord, I can't do this on my own. Correct Lord, I'm no match for the devil and his wiles. Correct. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. He cares for you. He will do it. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives to the death. Friends, God is looking for those who will be faithful to him, who are willing to be witnesses, martos, witnesses unto death, in honor of God's name and his cause. Prophets and Kings 588, men will be required to render obedience to human edicts in violation of the divine law. Those who are true to God will be menaced, denounced, and proscribed. They will be betrayed by both parents, brethren, and kinsfolk, and friends, even unto death. And you might be saying, there's no way I can burn at the stake the way John Huss did. There's no way I could face death like Martin Luther did and say, here I stand, I can do no other. So Lord, help me. How could I be as faithful as those heroes of the Reformation were? 
our high calling, page 125, it says, We are not to have the courage and fortitude of martyrs of old until. That is a hinge word. We are not to have the courage and fortitude of martyrs of old until brought into the position they were in. Should there be a return of persecution, there would be grace given to arouse every energy of the soul to show a true heroism. And when does it come? Not until. Now, this is not talking about just, okay, well, then I'm just going to chill out. It doesn't matter. No, you keep, the best thing you can do is focus on your connection with God. Remember that he'll give you the words to speak at the right time. And then claim this idea that it doesn't come, but until or not until this presents itself, God will give you every energy you need to bring you through it. And so again, where does our hope and our power and our strength lie? In Christ alone. How are you going to make it through the time of trouble? In Christ alone. All right, so what about this crowning act of Satan's deception? We could be here too long, but this is when Satan personates Christ. This is one artist's depiction. I don't know that it's necessarily accurate, but I thought it was interesting how it has modern people bowing down. I think at the end of the day, it really doesn't scratch the surface of what this personation of Christ is going to be. We looked at this quotation already in this series, Great Controversy 624, as the crowning act in the great drama of deception, Satan himself will personate Christ. Let's pause right there. Notice the word is personate. We don't use that word very often. Oftentimes we use the word impersonate. And impersonate is when I stand up here and I try and act out Pastor Hyman and whatever he might do, and you know, he likes to whatever. That's impersonation. All of you know that I'm not him. But you get your chuckles when you hear somebody that impersonates and we go to, you know, different things and we hear presidents being impersonated and it's all fun and games, whatever. But to personate, if you look it up in Webster's, it's the idea of fooling somebody. It's a, it has a fraudulent intent. I remember as a kid hearing a story, and I was talking to my dad this week. I said, Dad, do you remember this story? Am I just making it up? And he says, you know, I vaguely remember something about it. I think I know who might remember. And he made a phone call, and we, we got the details. It was actually printed, and so I, I got the article. But the story goes like this. Dr. Akers, who's down here in the bottom right, in 1970, he became the new president of Washington Adventist University, formerly CUC. And as the president there, they had a picnic not too far away from Camp David. Now, the other obvious thing here is that Nixon was the president, and Akers looked very similar to Nixon. And so he was asked constantly, you know, about, are you related? Are you brothers? Are you this? Are you that? Which none of, to my understanding, was, was the case. But they're at this school picnic. They're very close to Camp David. And actually, as it were, Nixon was at Camp David at the time, working on a speech, and so somehow in this picnic and in the conversation, they're talking, they say, you know what would be fun, Dr. Akers? Let's put you in this very presidential green Cadillac and let's drive up to the gate and let's see what happens. Let's at least talk to the guards and we'll get a good laugh and, and they'll turn us away, of course, and we'll just come back to the picnic. We'll tell everybody all about it. It'll be a fun story. And the next thing he knows, he's in the front seat of the Cadillac. They're driving. Sure enough, they come right up to Camp David. And this is the word that one of the, the college students says. It says, our president is ready to go through. Now, true, he's the president of CUC, but he's not President Nixon. 
And when he says those words, the guard at the gate, and he salutes, he presses the button, and the gate opens right, and they proceed to drive through. Everyone's looking at each other. What do we do now? <laughs> Dr. Aker says, turn this car around. We're going out. In the meantime, the guard that beeped him in says, the president's party has just cleared. <laughs> to which the response comes back, what do you mean he's just cleared? He's taking a nap. And within seconds, Secret Service swarm the car. They split everybody up. For three hours, they interrogate. They take the car apart, and they have files that are created and printed off within minutes that are right there of everything they've ever done, every degree, every everything. And they explain what they, you know, we're sorry, this was, we were not trying to, and so on. After three hours, they finally let them go. Dr. Akers, who has since passed away not too long ago, he retired in the Collegedale area. He said, in the end, they were actually thankful we alerted them to a weakness in their security plan. <laughs> he says, and I quote, they had been preparing for all sorts of things, but not for lookalike. That's a personation. He was intending to impersonate. It ended up being personate. As the crowning act in the great drama of deception, Satan himself will personate Christ. Friends, he'll have done everything in his power to make people think he is Christ. Personation is for deception. And almost all who view Satan in this personation will be deceived. Because the deception is so great that Christ himself warned us when they say he is here in the desert or he's in some other place, do not go and see. Do you remember those verses? It's right here in Matthew 24, 23. Then if anyone says to you, look here is the Christ or there, do not believe it. Notice there's a here or there. And I've told you some people put it on different sides of the close of probation and there's even been the suggestion it could be both. It could be here and there at different times, as he can't fully reproduce what God could do, or every eye will see him, and so on. But Jesus' words go on here. If possible, even for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Therefore, they say to you, look, he's in the desert. Do not go. That's the key I want to drive home right here. Don't go. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Meaning, you won't miss the real thing. It will be unmistakable. But if somebody says, oh, it's over here, don't go. And the temptation might be, oh, well, I'm a good Seventh-day Adventist. I know all my Bible verses. I know Bible prophecy. I know what it says, you know, in Revelation 1, 7, that every eye will see him. And I didn't see him. I also know that when he comes, everybody's going to be caught up in the clouds together to meet the Lord in the air. His feet aren't going to touch the ground. I'm a good Adventist. Therefore, we'll always be with the Lord up there. And so somebody's going to be tempted to go. So I can come back and bring a report and say, I looked at his feet. They were on the ground. False. But Jesus says, don't go. Why? Because it's going to be so incredibly 
dazzling and bright and magnificent like no eye has ever beheld before. Elizabeth, I know you want to get me a Lamborghini for my birthday, but I'm really not interested. Poof, here it is. Bright red, wax. Go in and just sit and smell the interior. Ah, the door, or however they do now. Maybe I do want one. I don't want to stay in that ritzy hotel. That looks like a really hoity-toity place. And then you walk into the lobby and there's just, the whole thing is just lined with orchids and somebody's waiting on you in a, a warm hand towel and they assist you here and there and there. You, maybe I do want to stay here. But friends, we are warned, do not go. Because if you go, even the elect that have taken Adventism 101, 102, and 103 will be deceived. Don't go. Or you'll be duped. And so going back, as the crowning act in the great drama of deception, Satan himself will personate Christ. The church has long professed to look to the Savior's advent as the consummation of her hopes. But we keep going in this quote. Now the great deceiver will make it appear that Christ has come. In different parts of the earth, Satan will manifest himself among men as a majestic being of dazzling brightness, resembling the description of the Son of God given by John in the Revelation. And so he's going to look like Jesus. He's going to quote the words of Jesus. And the glory that surrounds him is unsurpassed by anything that mortal eye has beheld. The shout of triumph rings out upon the air. Christ has come. Christ has come. And the people prostrate themselves in adoration before him. And when every hand is going down and bowing, don't think for, your, for a moment that yours won't too. That's why you don't go. And while he lifts up his hands and pronounces a blessing upon them as Christ blessed His disciples, when he was upon the earth, his voice is soft and subdued, yet full of melody. And then it says, in gentle, compassionate tones, he presents some of the same gracious heavenly truths which the Savior uttered. He heals the diseases of the people. And then, in his assumed character of Christ, he claims to have changed the Sabbath to Sunday and commands all to hallow the day which he has blessed. Now, some that I respect say this is in the time of Jacob's trouble. This is during the, the seven last plagues because the plagues are falling on the wicked and they're starting to rebel against Satan. And so he comes and impersonates Christ and says, no, no, no. Sunday's my day. Stay strong. Could be. And if I'm wrong, it won't be the first time and it won't be the last. But to me, in my simple mind, it makes a little more sense that this is coming after perhaps a national Sunday law, and before it goes international, the world is kind of like, I'm not so sure about this. But then Jesus himself comes and confirms it all, and the world gets on board. I don't know. I suppose at some point we'll find out. Continuing, it says, he declares that those who persist in keeping holy the seventh day are blaspheming his name. By refusing to listen to his angels sent to them with light and truth, this is the strong, almost overmastering delusion. I don't think this is going to happen, but I suppose you could be in court. Why are you worshiping on the Sabbath? Bring Jesus Christ to the stand. I changed it. Enough said? Almost overmastering delusion. Continuing 625 now, great controversy. His blessing is pronounced upon the worshipers of the beast and his image, the very class upon whom the Bible declares that God's unmingled wrath or plagues shall be poured out. Now this quotation is taken from the chapter that mostly describes Jacob's time of trouble. And so some say the context shows that it's during that time. I receive that. 
But I also see here in the midst, because there's other places in that chapter that she goes back to times that are before then, and it's pretty plain that she is. And then it says here that God's unmingled wrath or plagues shall, which is future, be poured out. So to me, that's another reason that it's before the seven last plagues, before the close of probation. And then going back to where this quote all started, the crowning act and the great drama of deception. If you're going to be any good at deceiving, you want to do it before it's close of probation and game over. It's not that we don't have a choice after, it's just that everybody's mind is fixed at the close of probation. Let's say we decide we want to paint this church, the whole sanctuary. We want it either green or we want it purple. And everybody that wants it green on this side, everybody wants it purple on that side. And we could talk up here for hours and hours in agnosium. And eventually you'll say, look, we get it. Let's vote. Nobody's changing their mind. Everybody that was right here on the side, they're like, they've seen the little samples. And everybody's made a choice. That's the close of probation. But to me, if you're going to deceive people, if you're really going to stick it to God, you're going to have to grab them before they made up their mind. And so it's going to be before the close of probation when somebody's still on the fence. And then when Jesus himself comes, they say, aha, and that's how the devil swoops with his tail again, the kids of God. Another quote, Testimonies to Ministers, page 62. In this age, Antichrist will appear as the true Christ, and then the law of God will be fully made void in the nations of our world. Notice the word then, again, is future. And it's talking about this law of God being made void, not just nationally, but the nations of our world. To me, I feel like this fits into Revelation 17. Revelation 17, verse 8, the beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. We looked at that last time. The was is the papacy, but in 1798 it receives a deadly wound, and so it was or is not for a time. But then the future, when there's a Sunday law and all the world marvels after the beast, that means it shall ascend or that it yet is. And so again, the papacy will rise to a zenith of power and unite with the state, pass around the cup of false doctrines and become a major world force. And then we, we focus briefly on this, Revelation 17, verse 12. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom, singular, as yet. We talked about how ten is a universal number and represents the kings of the earth coming together for a one-world alliance. And we mentioned that kingdom, singular, not plural, because they're all coming together to form one collective, yes, we agree, and what is it? I believe that's when it goes from a national Sunday law to an international Sunday law, as the kings form this one world alliance. And again, I would suggest that the tipping point could be the personation of Christ. Continuing, it says, These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast, and they will make war with the Lamb. So finishing this quote, Testimonies and Ministers, rebellion against God's holy law will be fully ripe, but the true leader of all this rebellion is Satan clothed as an angel of light. Then she says, men will be deceived and will exalt him to the place of God and defy him. But omnipotence will interpose, and to the apostate churches that unite In the exaltation of Satan, the sentence will go forth, therefore shall future her plagues come, and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. 
Again, another reason I think it might be before. But you know what? At the end of the day, does it so much matter when you and I don't fully know when probation will close? Does it really matter? Going back to great controversy, it says, but the people of God will not be misled. Why? The teachings of this false Christ are not in accordance with the Scriptures. That's the point. Not where it is on the timeline as much as that you know the Scriptures. And if you know the Scriptures, she says, you won't be fooled. So what's the best advice yet? Draw close unto Jesus. All right. Let's look at this one piece here, Call to Leave the Cities. And I'm going to try and do this quickly. But some of you have been asking about that. You know, that forces us to ask several questions when it comes to the call to leave the cities. Does that mean we should not have churches in the city? Does that mean that all of our churches in the city should encourage their members to leave? And does that mean that every family in the city should leave? Is there a way to balance the call to leave the cities? And even just hearing that makes some nervous. So what is this all about? Well, first of all, God loves cities. And the reason God loves cities is because people live in cities and God loves people. But when you look at the major cities of the world today, it's rather mind-boggling. Here's Tokyo, Japan, 37.2 million people. If you take the greater extent, you know, Atlanta is one of those for us that keeps sprawling bigger and bigger and bigger. The city limits specifically, but if you take the overall larger, that's what I'm doing with these numbers. So Tokyo is 37.2 million people. This is Chongqing, China. It's in southwest China, covering an area twice the size of Switzerland, 32 million people. I can't wrap my mind around that. Sao Paulo in Brazil, 23.4 million people. And not even that far away is Rio, which is also up in the millions. And they're almost connecting with one another. Mexico City, 21.6 million people. New York, 20.3 million people. And so I want to look here at Ellen White and divide it up into four basic reasons that she gives for leaving the cities, okay? Reason number one, preserving the spirituality of young children. And these are kind of obscure too, but most of them are taken out of that little book, Country Living. And so if you're going to get a book, I would just go grab Country Living. It says, let no temporal advantages tempt parents to neglect the training of their children. Whenever possible, it is the duty of parents to make homes in the country for their children. That's in letter 268. She continues, the children and youth should be carefully guarded. They should be kept away from the hotbeds of iniquity that are to be found in our cities. Let them to be surrounded by influences of a true Christian home, a home where Christ abides. Isn't that best for our kids? If we place ourselves under objectionable influences, can we expect God to work a miracle to undo the results of our wrong course? She says, no, indeed. That's Country Living, page 17. Here's another one. Get out of the cities as soon as possible and purchase a little piece of land where you can have a garden where your children can watch the flowers growing and learn from them lessons of simplicity and purity. I like that. I also have to mention, though, that if we're not careful, we can find that beautiful piece of land and we can bring the city right in with us with our phones, our internet connection, our TV, and don't get me started on that. But it's happening all too often. My project, my doctoral project was on that. And I've delivered it here, I've delivered it other places. And what hurts me the most is when parents say, I wish I would have heard this a few years ago. Because they said, I never would have given my son, my daughter, a smartphone. 
had I known what I was doing. Continuing on, the second reason, the influences of the city wear on a person spiritually. It's kind of another bulk of things that she says. Here's a few of them. In harmony with light given me, I'm urging people to come out from the great centers of population. Our cities are increasing in wickedness, and it becomes more and more evident that those who remain in them unnecessarily do so at the peril of their soul's salvation. We'll look a little bit more on this unnecessarily word, but we can see that to be true. Here's another one, Ministry of Healing 363. The world over, cities are becoming hotbeds of vice. On every hand are the sights and sounds of evil. Everywhere are enticements to sensuality. The tide of corruption and crime is continually swelling. Every day brings the record of violence, robberies, murders, suicides, and crimes unnameable. It goes on, life in the cities is false and artificial. How true. The intense passion for money getting, the world of excitement and pleasure seeking, the thirst for display, the luxury and extravagance, all are forces that with great masses of mankind are turning the mind from life's true purpose. Pastor, it doesn't affect me. That is such a telling statement. It already has. They are opening the door to, to a thousand evils. Upon the youth, they have almost irresistible power. One of the most subtle and dangerous temptations that assail the children and youth in the cities is the love of pleasure. And we are a pleasure-saturated society today. You go to work. What did you do this weekend? They're basically saying, what did you do to pleasure yourself? That's the mentality. The third reason, cities will ultimately be destroyed. That's a good reason to get out, Right? There are reasons why we should not build in the cities. On these cities, God's judgments are soon to fall. That's in Country Living, page 8. This is also there. The time is near when large cities will be swept away, and all should be warned of these coming judgments. Oh, that God's people had a sense of the impending destruction of thousands of cities, now almost given to idolatry. This is the one that, to me, is the most gripping. It's from Evangelism, page 29. A very impressive scene was presented before me. I seemed to awake from sleep, but was not in my home. So she's in, in vision here. From the windows, I could behold a terrible conflagration. Great balls of fire were, f- were falling upon houses, and from these balls, fiery arrows were flying in every direction. It was impossible to check the fires that were kindled, and many places were being destroyed. The terror of the people was indescribable. Can you imagine? And the last reason? A time is coming when we can no longer buy or sell and it will be difficult to leave the cities. That's the last clump, if you will, of quotations she gives us. Here's one, volume five, the testimonies, 464 and 465. It's no time now for God's people to be fixing their affections, and I've read this before, or laying up their treasures in the world. The time is now far distant when, like the early disciples, we shall be forced to seek a refuge in desolate and solitary places. As the siege of Jerusalem by the Roman armies was the signal for flight to the Judean Christians. Not one perished, by the way, because they followed this command. So the assumption of power on the part of our nation in the decree enforcing papal Sabbath will be a warning to us. We could say this will be the final call. If you stay beyond this, Lord help you. It will then be time to leave the large cities preparatory to leaving the smaller ones for retired homes and secluded places among the mountains. In preparatory meaning we leave the large cities first, in preparation to leave the small cities next, so that we eventually end up in the mountains. Pathfinder skills come in. Yeah. 
And all these people out here are going to say, why did I drop out of Pathfinders? I don't know what to eat out here. Just stick with one of these guys. You'll be okay. But when the time comes that we can't buy or sell, it's almost too late at that point, isn't it? Now, that's not the first phase of the Sunday law, so when that first phase comes, you get out. And we've seen even with this coronavirus that a lot of people in New York City decided they're not Christian, they don't know the Bible, they've never heard of prophecy or Ellen White, but they decided to get out. By the truckloads, they're getting out because they see it. What a rebuke to us that say, no, I, I, like, I like it here, it's comfortable. This is home. Remember Hurricane Katrina in 2005? I mean, these images were horrific. As, I don't know how many, I didn't find the number, but so many thousands, hundreds of thousands of people were stranded there. Nothing to eat, no clean water, stealing from one another. It was terrible. I remember watching the news while I was at seminary when this happened, and I, I remember weeping at the situation they found themselves in. And friends, if we wait until then, it's too late. I'm on the next bus out of here. Guess what? There's no more buses out of here. Even the rioting in 2020 in Minneapolis just last year. I mean, this just kind of comes up on top of you pretty quick, right? That's a scary time. The more remote you are, the better sleep you probably got. The time has come when, as God opens the way, key part of that quotation, families should move out of the cities. When? As God opens the way. The children should be taken into the country. The parents should get as suitable a place as their means will allow. Though the dwelling may be small, we could say cramped, yet there should be land in connection with it that may be cultivated. And when do we do that? As God opens the way. As we get on our knees and say, Lord, we have all these things, we have you know, kids in school, we have this job thing over here, and we have these obligations there, and, and we're involved in our church, and, and this and that. Lord, what do you want me to do? And when, and is, is this possibly a window of opportunity you've given to our family to get out of the city? And that answer is not the same for everybody, right? Ellen White really gives one reason to stay in the city, to be a witness for Jesus Christ in that city, because that is where people live. If you're in the city for any other reason, I'm worried for you. Because the city will rub off on you over time. At one point in 1893, there were about 100 to 200 families in Battle Creek that got the message that we need to leave the cities. And so there was... Almost 200 families, 100, 200 families that were just going to leave. I mean, just up and go. Gone. Battle Creek. And this is the counsel that she wrote. She says, your letter tells me, my brother, that there are many who are stirred deeply to move out of Battle Creek. And then she says this, there's need. Great need of this work being done. And now, those who have felt at last to make a move, let it not be in rush, in an excitement, or in a rash manner, or in any way that hereafter... They will deeply regret that they did move out. I see her saying, you've got to make this a matter of prayer, guys. Because there's a work still to be done in the cities where people live. So when is the right time? God knows. And he'll tell you when. What is each of us to do? 
Country Living, page 26, says, Think candidly, prayerfully, studying the word with all carefulness and prayerfulness, with mind and heart awake to hear the voice of God. To understand the will of God is a great thing. Pastor Wright told us I had to move. That's not what I said. I said, you get on your knees and you ask God. When's the right time? You prayerfully consider where you're at. And you say, is this the right place for now? Do I need to be thinking about the future? If something happens, where will I go? What will I do? Make that a matter of prayer. God will show you. Okay. Our scripture reading, Luke 17, verse 26. Thank you, Adrian, for reading that for us. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage. Time out, Pastor, what's wrong with any of those things? Nothing. The problem is, that's all that life consisted of. That was it. Where are we going to eat? What should we have to drink? There's another wedding, let's go. Until that day, Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Until that day. They are just consumed with the affairs of this life, living the American dream, the white picket fence. I think we can afford this now, we can afford that now. What a nice, oh, isn't this luxurious? Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all, Jesus said. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. That's a very kind way of saying, unfortunately, people will still be clueless. They'll be doing their own thing. And then this... One of the shortest verses in Scripture. Remember Lot's wife. What did she do? She was focused on acquiring wealth and possessions, living the American dream. She had the pool she always wanted. She had the house she always wanted. Her dream house, right? Yet imperceptibly the city had changed her and over time she had lost the true meaning of life. And what did Solomon conclude is the true meaning of life in Ecclesiastes? Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. That was out the window. She lost sight, and when they were fleeing, finally fleeing, the city, after much resistance, Lot's wife looks back. Remember another verse, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so she looks back longingly at what she's leaving behind. And that's it for her. It brought about her demise. And then Jesus has this verse in connection with all this. Verse 33, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. I like it a little bit better in Mark's translation. It says, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Friends, God is looking for a people that are sold out to him, that are willing to live not for self, but for Christ, that are willing to die if necessary for Christ, to win others over for Christ. 
and to prayerfully seek God's will for their lives and have the courage to follow His leading wherever He takes us, whenever He takes us. Because, friends, a little time of trouble is coming. The testing time is coming, and sadly, for most, it will be just like the days of Noah. It will be just like the days of Lot. And people will just simply be focused on living the good life. When are we going to get back to normal? And they'll be completely ignorant of the things of God. Friends, may that not ever be said of you and me. But may we take our Bible study and prayer time seriously. We have more resources at our disposal than ever before. Let's study this book. Let's feed on this book. Let's eat this book. And let's spend time on our knees and ask the Lord to reveal us understanding, reveal us insight to know what we ought to do. That by the grace of God, it will be our privilege to be able to honor and stand for our, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you will help us, that you will guide us to see the times in which we're living to make the necessary preparations, both external and internal. And that may we settle in to the truth and may we trust you fully in all things. And may you grow us so that when that testing time comes, you will give us everything we need. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.